In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome to a special edition of Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, one of the political insiders here, taking you inside the AJC investigation, Dangerous Dwellings. People are just shooting you. I just heard um, three gunshots in the apartment complex. Um, I hear gunshots in the apartment. The apartment's caught on fire today, so I guess the rats are coming out as well. So I'm just going to go on and say that we still got holes in the apartment. This is rat number five. This is where the man got killed on Monday night. Reminder, if you're just listening to us for the first time, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm sitting here with Alan Judd and Willoughby Mariano, two of our AJC investigative reporters who have spent the last year plus probably on this investigation. It is so wonderful to be here with you guys, bringing more attention to this special investigative project. Willoughby, let's start with you. How did this project come about? Well, what we've known, I mean, we've all seen crime increase here in Atlanta, and we found that crime homicides cluster at certain apartment complexes. We've seen this phenomenon before, but of course, because the of the increase in crime, the problem is more acute, and it's sort of called out to be investigated more. And our editor, Lois Norder, had been kind of uh, quietly tracking all of these uh, these killings on her own. She's famous her... for that around the newsroom, yeah, is yeah. just like finding threads and then kind of collecting <laughs> them and gathering them together. Yeah, in her so-called spare time. I don't know when that is. Yeah. Um, but uh, and so there we go. It became more essential, more more crucial, more timely, more important to figure out, OK, if certain apartment complexes are common sites of crime, why is that? Mm-hmm. And so that's how Dangerous Dwellings began. It's just a very simple question at a time when we needed to understand crime better than we had before. And what came out of it is a multi-part series you can read at AJC.com slash dwellings and, of course, in the print edition. Alan, you and Willoughby have been part of these huge projects before where you're tackling really hard questions. And one of the challenges that you know very well is how to boil that down into a readable format, into a story that can be compelling but also revelatory. Yeah, and it was helped this time by the fact we had some really compelling people we talked to, some people who've lived in these complexes that are who have tried their best to get improvements, to get repairs made to their apartments and just haven't been able to do it. You know, it's like they've they've done everything humanly possible and they still are up against the system that kind of bats them down at every turn. And then some of the owners were pretty interesting too, but 
the other thing we found out is that a lot of these places are owned by private equity companies now, and it's almost they're sort of faceless monoliths that collect up property, turn it over pretty quickly, and make a big profit. Yeah, and these are the places that are probably hounding folks with text messages. You still live at XYZ property? Would you like to sell it? And there are these institutional buyers that have no real roots in the community. Right, right. They're mostly from New York or, or, or Los Angeles or sometimes Chicago, a few, few other big cities. And some of the biggest, uh, you know, private equity companies in the world, BlackRock and Starwood and, and all these big players have subsidiaries that buy up apartment complexes all over the country. Atlanta is sort of a hot market for that right now because property values have been going up so much. But they, they know that they can buy here, and within a year, maybe two or three at most, they can pretty close to double their money. Wow. Uh, Willoughby, once you, Alan, and Lois have boiled down the question, then comes the real hard part, right? Because this is not just something you could go report by Google search or, you know, <laughs> looking on social media for a thread here and there. You had to go out and do shoe leather reporting that, that is painstaking. That took a very long time. Yeah, it did. And I'm still tired. <laughs> no, um, seriously, though. I mean, it did. And I don't think COVID helped. So, you know, I'm a long, I'm, you know, for years and years, I was a cops reporter. And so I am used to, and Alan is used to knocking on doors to find sources for stories, real humans. But the problem is that, first of all, COVID, uh, you, it's hard to be a stranger and, and knock on a door and say, hey, uh, you know, I, I, I want to talk to you when there's a pandemic. And more complicated is wearing a mask. So of course, to, to keep ourselves safe and any interview subjects safe, we had to wear masks. In neighborhoods where wearing a mask, being a stranger, wearing a mask and knocking on a door is not a great way to have that door answered, mm -hmm. even if there's somebody inside. People want to see your face and know that you're not, you're, you're not there for nefarious purposes. So it was hard to find people. And uh, because we couldn't just go door to door, we had to find other routes to find individuals. Um, so we we went through public records. We found people who were being in the process of being evicted, for instance, because that means their names just sort of pop up as tenants when they might not otherwise in you know public record searches mm -hmm. because they're relatively new, only at a location for one or two years. Uh, one really powerful way was through code enforcement complaints. These were people who were trying to fight back, living, you know, with rats and lots of vermin, cockroaches, uh, electrical problems, you name it, lots of hazardous things. And they were trying to fight back and they were willing to talk about it to the authorities. And many of them were willing to talk about their problems to us. Alan, how did you go about building trust with, with people who aren't usually covered by the media, let alone comfortable with speaking to the media? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's, you know, I'm a middle-aged white man going into communities that are predominantly African-American. Um, I got some funny looks, you know, driving in, drive, walking around. But, you know, people, when you start talking to them and you just explain what you're doing and, you know, act with some humility and show a little empathy for their situation, you know, it usually breaks down the, the barriers. You know, Willow was really great at building a lot of these sources because we had a lot of um, like single mothers or else single women who would have probably been less comfortable with a man coming in, hanging out in their apartment, you know, than having a woman, 
you know, it was fine. It, though overall, I really liked a lot of the people we talked to. The very intelligent people who've had some bad breaks, basically, for mo- probably some cases most of their lives. And they are just stuck in these places that really aren't fit to live in or to raise their kids in. Willoughby, let's talk about some of the findings. If you had to give, and I know there are so many findings embedded in, in this multi-part series, but if you had to distill it down to three or four main findings, uh, what would those be? Hmm. I think one of the most powerful ones is that we looked at more than a thousand of these apartment complexes and found 250 that had so many problems with crime and, and uh, code enforcement complaints that they were barely habitable. And, and when you add that all up together, we were able to look at some school districts' directory information and, and count that about 13,000, at least 13,000 kids lived in these apartment complexes. That, that's at least uh, because many school districts did not give them, give us their information. Tens of thousands of people, at least 13,000 kids, just in the five core counties of uh, Metro Atlanta alone. This is a widespread problem. It's, it, you know, I'm damaging lives potentially for generations to come. And Alan, in one of your uh, joint stories with Willoughby, you have this passage, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing, but Georgia doesn't let renters break a lease if their apartment is unfit to live in. It doesn't let courts take control of rental properties when owners won't correct egregious violations. It doesn't even require landlords to guarantee that rentals are, are livable. Right. It's pretty s- stunning. Yeah, you know, uh, Georgia law is dominated by business interest. We, you know, we've known that for, in a lot of areas. A lot of legislators traditionally, historically, have been people who own rental property, who have been landlords, essentially. And they have not shown a lot of um, interest in extending rights to tenants. It's a very strong property rights state. So if you own the property, you can pretty much do what you want to with it. Well, another one of your findings... And this one got me. And again, I'm paraphrasing, but lack security, deferred maintenance, governmental inertia, which is a very good phrase, and Georgia's weak tenant protection laws have rendered much of the region's affordable housing barely habitable. I mean, you guys, when I say exhaustive, that, that's an understatement. You guys cut through all sorts of records and were able to authoritatively say that so much of the affordable housing that's out for lease, that, you know, that so many people, hundreds, you know, tens of thousands of people in Metro Atlanta rely on, is almost unlivable. So much of it is aging, you know, 40, 50, 60, one case uh, over 70 years old and has not been maintained through the years. If anything, it's worse off now than it has been in fairly recent times. And again, the crime is just overwhelming in some of these places. The number of gunshots people hear day after day after day. People might be sitting in their house and a bullet comes through the wall or the window. We talked to several people that that happened to. We also found that I think it was 162 of the 250 or so complexes that we identified as being the most dangerous. In 162 of those, they account for one out of every five homicides throughout Metro Atlanta. So that gives you some idea of the concentration of violence and crime in a lot of these complexes. And Willoughby, what did policing experts say? What did law enforcement officials say about uh, this situation? Well, there's been a lot of research on what they call place-based crime. And, you know, when it comes to apartment complexes, 
the most powerful force is management. They decide um, whether or not to make sure that the locks work on your front door or the, and the windows lock. They make sure that a unit in your apartment building isn't occupied by squatters, drug dealers. And these basic safety precautions are the kinds of things that make the difference between a safe place and a very dangerous one. And so we see the results uh, in apartment complex after apartment complex. Places that with lax management when it comes to safety precautions aren't just dangerous, but they very often are poorly maintained and people live in miserable circumstances. To add to that, it's not as if the people who rented these complexes are part of the criminal element. Police acknowledge, Atlanta police acknowledge, that a lot of these crimes are simply committed by outsiders. They come in, they see a situation that they can take advantage of, they know that the uh, uh, the security cameras don't work, they know the locks don't work, and boom, they've got a place to sell drugs. And we've seen it time in and time out. We've seen actual cases where drug dealing takes place, and, and next thing you know, there's gunfire, and uh, a woman and her family has a a bullet come through the living room wall. And it's pretty simple when you think about it. I mean, of course, a place that's poorly managed would end up being dangerous. I mean, uh, I make sure my locks work on my house and I don't let drug dealers hang out in the spare bedroom. But that's what these apartment complexes are essentially doing. They're letting drug dealers hang out in the spare bedroom. You know, and there's really a correlation between maintenance and upkeep of, of an apartment and, and the amount of crime. We talked to both, you know, criminologists will tell you this, but also cops will tell you that a badly maintained or really, you know, a, a dilapidated building will attract criminals as a place to operate out because they see it as a, as nobody cares. An open door. Because nobody cares about it. They're, they're not going to care if I'm there selling drugs or robbing people or whatever. We wanted to bring this home. This is already making my blood boiling just rethinking about all this, but we wanted to bring this home to our listeners. And one way we wanted to tell the story is to take you through what it's like to live at one of these apartment complexes for a week. Alan, Judd, and Willoughby Mariano zeroed in on one apartment complex in particular in southwest Atlanta. Here is our producer, Jay Black, with what that sounds like. This is seven days at what was then the life at Greenbrier Apartments off Campbellton Road. Now it's called the Hills at Greenbrier. This week in 2020 starts on Sunday, March 30th. Atlanta police are called out six times, once for an audible alarm, another for a person hurt. But then it's 612 that evening. Atlanta number one, I put a 7171. What's the address of the emergency? Oh, my God! Three different people hear a man shot outside a second-story apartment. What is going on at the location? Okay, um, a man's been shot at 2909 Hamilton Road. Who's been Apartment shot? 13. Someone's been shot? Hold one moment. Police find 45-year-old Christopher Martin dead in the breezeway. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Hold up, man. Please, God, no. I like someone else has just called in. Oh, my God. Don't him. We don't know. <laughs> He's shot in the face. 43-year-old Shirley Ann Fuller is arrested. She told police she came to the apartment to buy marijuana from Martin almost four hours later. Um, I hear gunshots in the apartments that are called Life at Greenbrier. How many gunshots have you heard? Um, I've heard two. This caller didn't leave a specific location, so no report is filed. At 11.10 that night, 
There's vandalism at Building 18. A resident reports a woman she didn't know was banging so hard on her kitchen window that it breaks. Now, it's Monday, March 31st, 1.44 a.m. These people are just shooting you and they've been fighting all night in my neighborhood, and this is the second time somebody don't start shooting. What building are they near? Building 3. A half hour after that, there's another fight at Building 26. A man forces his way into the apartment of a woman who had obtained a protective order against him. Police find a handgun in the man's backpack and charge him with disorderly conduct. Then another fight breaks out at 5.02 in the morning at Building 18, same place where that vandalism was six hours ago. At 12.42 that afternoon, it's a recovered auto call. At 2.03, Atlanta police deal with abandoned children. On Tuesday morning, April 1st, it's another audible alarm at 9.41 a.m. Two hours later, this woman calls 911. I'm going to kill somebody or kill myself. I need you to pull up as soon as possible. Okay, why are you outside. saying you're about to kill someone? You're in an argument with someone or what, what's going on? I just have some serious issues going on, ma'am. And at 1.24 that afternoon. Sister just got shot. Sister just got shot? Okay, we have the ambulance on the way, okay? 34-year-old Felicia Morgan is shot. Right here, she on the floor. Is the attacker still nearby? Is the attacker still nearby? No. Morgan dies at Grady Hospital. Darian Dupree is charged with murder. At 6.09 that evening, police respond to a wreck with injuries. Then at 9.25. Somebody is in the back by the playground. Somebody keeps shooting me. It's about like the third time they didn't shot. How many, how many did you hear? How many got shot? It's about like two or three. The witness says it's the third time he's heard gunshots this week. They keep going in the back. back. So it's where the man got killed um, Monday night. A half hour later, police respond to an injured person call. Six minutes after that, another vandalism in Building 22. A man tells police he and his girlfriend were in their apartment when a young man fires a gun in the air and a bullet flies through their window. At 10 p.m., there's another person hurt. 40 minutes later... Is it a police fire or EMS? What police? It's on three gunshots. Okay, you heard three. Did you see who fired the shot? No, I'm in my apartment upstairs, but it sounded like it was right underneath. At 1 in the morning on Wednesday, April 2nd, police sent extra officers to the complex because of these shootings. Four more times on this day, officers respond to keep the peace. Thursday morning, April 3rd, starts with a couple of traffic stops. At 3.35 in the afternoon, officers go back out to make their presence known. Then at a quarter till one in the morning on Friday, April 4th, a man who says he's a security guard named Mike hears five gunshots. Moments later, another call. Three shots as I was um, getting ready to walk to my car. Did you see anything? No, ma'am, I didn't. It sounded like it was more towards the um, upward by the gate, so I wasn't able to see anything. At 2.18 a.m., Mike calls again. Multiple gunshots, at least three. What did, where were they at? I'm the security guard there. Later that afternoon at 3.34, another officer is told to keep an eye on the complex. About 90 minutes later, another vandalism in Building 30. A neighbor is accused of damaging a screen door. Police respond again just before midnight. Then there's a fight in Building 8. At 5.28 on that Saturday afternoon, gunfire again. I live in uh, 2909 Camelton Road, and it's been three shootings over here within oh. the last three weeks and I just heard gunshots again. During this week in 2020, the AJC finds that police came to this apartment 44 times, on average six times a day. Police dealt with more than 4,000 calls at the hills at Greenbrier from 2017 to 2021. Gun violence prompted one third of the calls for help.
guys, this is haunting. I mean, this this is just one week in one apartment complex. Yeah, we looked at 911 data and just saw that the police were going back to the same place over and over and over and over. And that obviously affects the rest of the city because if police officers are tied up at this place, they're not somewhere else. You know, Everybody wants more cops on the street, but the reality is when you have such concentrations of crime and shooting and just sort of general lawlessness, they can't be everywhere at once so that they're kind of constantly chasing around after the latest call like like this. And Willoughby, that's the impact on police, but the impact on residents. You guys both talk to residents who describe living in a war zone, living in fear, living in terror. Yeah, and I mean, the funny thing is that it's become pretty normal for them. I, we talked to one woman who had called in a code enforcement complaint, Alexis Cargyle, and uh, she lived in what was then, I guess, the life at Greenbrier. She talked more about electrical problems that put her kids in danger, a torn up floor that they wouldn't fix, cockroaches that, you know, she paid an extra fee to have uh, addressed, but the exterminator never showed up. And it took a while. And and, and finally, we, we asked, hey, um, do you hear gunfire? And she said, of course, all the time. And she pointed then to a place in her living room wall that had been shot through. There were so many problems at that apartment complex. Shootings were so commonplace that that was almost an afterthought. And and this is a woman also who had a murder, or I guess a homicide, uh, there's been no conviction yet, um, but a homicide take place up the stairs from her house. In fact, the uh, the first 911 call we heard, that was something that she and her children heard from downstairs. Wow. Well, we talked about the problems. When we get back from break, we'll talk about some of the solutions or potential solutions. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. We're back on the special edition of Political Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Inside the AJC Investigation, Dangerous Dwellings. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein. Right now, we at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are offering our best deal of the year. For a limited time, you can get six months of unlimited digital access to the AJC and the AJC e-paper for just 99 cents. Politics, investigations like this one, breaking news, sports, dining, and all of our AJC newsletters, including the Jolt, for less than a buck. It's our best offer of the year for the best journalism in Georgia. Go to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast to get unlimited digital access for the next six months for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast so you always know 
what's really going on. I'm back with AJC investigative reporters Willoughby Mariano and Alan Judd for more on their exclusive investigative report. Took more than a year, right? That's safe to say. More than a year of working for these two AJC investigative reporters, along with a team of editors and others who helped out. And, you know, what we didn't talk about was how hard it was to track down some of the owners, many of whom are getting government subsidies. Right. A lot of them uh, receive direct subsidies through rental assistance programs for their tenants. Others receive tax breaks for operating low-income housing. There's also just the fact that they create a disproportionate drain on public resources like police and fire and code enforcement and all, all kinds of other things. So it's basically everybody's paying for this one way or another. And will it be when you track down some of these, I mean, if some were impossible, just didn't respond, institutional owners with no, no presence really other than owning properties here. Um, but the owners that you were able to track down, what kind of response did they give to these ongoing problems in their own properties? In general, they said, oh, hey, uh, we take security seriously. It's one of our top priorities. And, and look how much money we've spent on it. It doesn't quite square with reality. You know, one of the more difficult to understand reactions was from a gentleman named Ben Barakai. He's a Beverly Hills owner who owns a place called uh, Pavilion Place on Cleveland Avenue here in the city. He said that it's uh, his building is, is 100% habitable and or livable, I think was his term. And we knew it was not livable. I mean, just a few weeks earlier, I had talked to a tenant who had uh, beat off a rat with a uh, Swiffer Duster handle. She had to kill the rat on a Friday afternoon with that Swiffer Duster handle. That doesn't count as livable. And, and in May, after I think seven months of being burnt out, a building that had had a fire in September was finally declared uh, uninhabitable. It was placarded by code enforcement. So you literally could not live there. And yet people lived there and a family was moved in even after that sign was posted. Wow. This same guy has a uh, pretty distinctly different lifestyle than the people who live in his properties. We found through divorce records, actually, he's in the middle of a really nasty divorce out in, out in Los Angeles. And we found in those records documents about his monthly living expenses he has a big house. He employs a pool man and a gardener and a housekeeper and tutors for his preschool age children. Uh, his wife at one point had a $1,500 a month spa membership. They eat out several times a week at 250 bucks a, a pop, basically. All total, their monthly household expenses were just under $40,000. Pavilion Place is in a census tract where the average family income per year is $20,000. So there's this huge gap between what he has and what they have, and he clearly is not using his wealth to make the lives better of the people who live in his properties. So while he has a household staff of a half dozen, some of his tenants are fighting off rats with broomsticks. That is absolutely correct. Yeesh. Um, well, let's talk about the feedback you, you guys have received because this has gotten national attention, rightly so. It's gotten a tremendous amount of, of attention here in Metro Atlanta and in Georgia. What has been, Willoughby, what has been some of the, um, the most common threads of feedback you've received? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, uh, one heartening thing 
is that a lot of residents, a lot of readers are asking us, hey, what can we do to solve this issue? Some of them want to donate money to people we featured in our stories. Others are asking us, hey, should we call our state legislators? Who do we call to make sure this stuff gets fixed? Another Another sort of common response is from uh, plaintiff's attorneys, interestingly. You know, people who sue dangerous complexes for a living on behalf of crime victims. And the stories they tell us are horrific. You know, people murdered or maimed or permanently disabled. And uh, their belief is that the apartment complexes did not do the basic things that they should do to keep their tenants safe. So, um It is, though, rewarding to know that people do care very much about the renters in these apartment complexes. They're not a very powerful political constituency. They're certainly outmatched and have been for decades in the state legislature by the apartment association lobby. There's clearly incredible support. It's been a long time since I've received this many emails on any story So it's just extraordinary. They're still coming in, these emails. You hit a nerve. Alan, any surprising responses that you received other than the ones that are filled with uh, curse words? There are a few of those. (laughs) Um, You know, I think the the fact that so many people who would never, ever find themselves living in a place like these complexes really did take it to heart. And, and that that was that's that is really reassuring because many points during the the year thirteen months whatever it was that we worked on this you just sort of come down you know you, at the end of the day thinking nobody's going to care about this this is just you know what are we doing here and then to see that people actually do see what the issue is why there's a problem why this is wrong that's really kind of heartening for us. We have not received response from official, much in the way of official response from government agencies, certainly not the legislature, although a couple of legislators maybe are, are looking at it. There is a real disdain in the legislature for people in situations like this. Many times we quoted a, a former legislator in one of the stories who referred to the people who live in bad apartment complexes as being not very well educated and not understanding that you wash your dishes after you use them and the saying that they bring mold spores with them when they move into these places and vermin. uh, vermin. Yeah. So that's been a prevailing attitude in the Capitol for many years, as as I'm sure you've heard. Yeah. Well, it'd be, I mean, it's important to note too, that many of the people who live in these apartment complexes never imagine themselves living in the apartment complexes either. A few wrong turns, a few bad breaks, you know, it's hard on their luck. You know, it, it, it's, they didn't ask for this. No, one of them had uh, too much uh, student loan debt. And, of course, if you have a bad record with, with paying student loan debt, you can't get a good apartment. People have low credit scores because they were down on their luck. A lot of jobs, working class jobs, are no longer stable. And so their hours get cut. They can't afford this and that. And next thing you know, you've got an eviction filing on your record. One of them, for instance, she stopped paying her rent because her little boy was scared of the rats in her apartment. And so that apartment complex, which we didn't write about, although we could have, that apartment complex evicted her because they had every legal right to if she wasn't paying her rent and she had no defense according to state law. 
you know, conditions can't be part of your defenses uh, in, in the course of an eviction. And so she had a full-on eviction in her record, and she had to find an, a new place to stay. The only place that would accept her was Pavilion Place, the apartment complex that Alan mentioned that's owned by uh, that Beverly Hills gentleman. And so she nearly died in a fire with her kids over there. Uh, that was uh, exacerbated by the fact that a, a big sprinkler didn't work in her apartment building. So there's there's not a whole lot of winning. Once you get down in your luck, you you get stuck in these apartments. And there's no real good way out of it. Well, inflation remains a big concern. Interest rates are going higher. Pressure on rents is also going up. It's not likely that rents are about to fall. This issue is only going to get worse for for many people already struggling to find affordable housing. I sniffed around and talked to some lawmakers in general broadly about this piece. And you know, the lawmakers I talked to were moved by it. But they said the same thing almost, you know, we talked about at the beginning, is how to tackle such a, a broad issue with meaningful legislation. And that's, I guess, where I want to start the last segment of the show is, Alan, how do lawmakers tackle this? Because it takes political capital, right? There's going to be a lot of competing measures you know, before lawmakers in January when they return to the state capitol. What is one way that they could tackle this issue? You know, there, there, well, there are several ways. One thing they could do is adequately fund the agencies that actually do regulate affordable housing, like the Department of Community Affairs, to give them the resources to go after landlords who just refuse to maintain their apartment complexes in a responsible way. They also could give right more rights to tenants such as allowing tenants to withhold payment in lieu of repairs being made uh, now that's not you can't do that it, you can't cite that if you get evicted you, you're just out on the street basically there's a lot of other laws like that that other states have adopted that give individual tenants more rights those tend to help individuals in individual situations that are not really broader but if the state and local governments were more serious and more dedicated to giving the resources needed for actual enforcement of some of the laws that are on the books and some potential laws that could be on the books, that would go a long way toward making this better. And Willoughby, another issue you guys explored was potentially giving more leeway to, to file lawsuits, to file legal challenges. Uh, yeah, that... That, that is a possibility. In 2019, for instance, uh, there was a law passed that basically protected tenants from retribution from landlords uh, who decided that they needed to, I guess, essentially harass their tenants for complaining about conditions. Now, the problem is when you have a law like that, that means that in order to you know, create enforcement, you have to be able to get lawyers interested in these cases. And unfortunately, uh, the damages that a tenant can receive, for instance, are you know, very low, a few hundred bucks. And second of all, it takes there's a very high standard in order to get uh, lawyers' fees paid for by these suits. So you, you have to actually have to show a level of intent or you know, almost a kind of malice in order for lawyers to get their fees paid for. So, so in the end... These types of lawsuits can often become the domain of, uh, you know, volunteers, pro bono uh, lawyers, 
And there were not enough of them to go around to deal with this problem. It is so obvious, given the scope of what we're seeing, that this law in and of itself would not be enough to clean up, you know, however many hundreds of these apartment complexes exist. We talked about a little bit of what the state legislature could look at doing. What about local officials? What about city council members and county commissioners in the areas where we know that people living in affordable housing, the system is being abused? Um, A lot of that goes to code enforcement and resources for code enforcement. There also are jurisdictions in Metro Atlanta that do not accept code violation complaints from apartment dwellers. They, They will only address issues that are visible to the person driving by or driving into the complex, things that are on the outside. So they don't even take the complaints. And then even in, in the places, in the jurisdictions that do, that sometimes don't follow through on those complaints. We've, we've seen a number of cases in the city of Atlanta, for instance, that will be closed because they said they couldn't find the person who complained. Well, you know, they knock on the door once and if you're not home, you're kind of out of luck. But then again, the, the code enforcement officers in all the jurisdictions really are kind of overwhelmed. You know, they've got they've got more work to do than they can do, and they're not particularly well paid in most cases. And you know, the the law landlords rather have more money and have they have lawyers and they can tie things up in court if they choose to. It's a tough situation for them, but without the commitment to actually do that work, it's not going to happen. And will it be to close the loop? We talked at the beginning of the show about the, the thousands of children who live in an apartment complex like this who are also you know, living in unsanitary conditions filled with crime who are going to continue to face these issues well into adulthood. Yeah, it's kind of astonishing when you when you really start to think about it. I, you know, imagine growing up worried that a bullet will go through your living room wall. Some people um, we've met and uh, we've read about have had uh, children sickened by mold, asthma so bad they ended up in the emergency room. I mean, the list goes on and on. These are not healthy places to live. And so many of them are the only options for working families. It's, It's just amazing to think about what kind of damage has been done simply because an apartment complex isn't managed properly. And, you know, if we don't deal with this, I mean, we, we have to deal with this in some other, uh, with these conditions. We're going to end up dealing with it in, in terms of healthcare costs, in terms of policing costs, mental health issues. The damage compounds and it lasts for years. I got an interesting email from a principal at APS over the last weekend who said, we will never close the achievement gap when the physical, mental, and academic health of children living in these deplorable conditions is so compromised. And she goes on to talk about school attendance is is harmed by this because kids can't focus when they are in class. And being surrounded by death and serious injury due to continual violence hampers healthy brain and academic development. So it's it's a real issue that we will deal with one way or another. Unfortunately, we are putting off that reckoning until the, as long as we can as a society. Well, Alan Willoughby, thank you so much for joining us. And we know you will be continue to track this issue as it goes forward in the state legislature. 
Uh, we'll see what lawmakers and, and local officials plan to do, but we also know you'll be watching and holding their feet to the fire whether or not they'll do something substantive. Thank you for being here. You can count on new episodes of this podcast to come out every Wednesday, Friday, or whenever news breaks. We will see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.